Hello and welcome to another edition of Humanitarian AI Today, a podcast series produced by Humanitarian AI Meetup Groups in Cambridge, San Francisco, Seattle, New York City, Toronto, Montreal, London, Paris, Berlin, Oslo, Geneva, Zurich, Bangalore, Tel Aviv, and Tokyo. I'm Larissa Doroshenko, a lecturer at Northeastern University and a researcher specializing in state-sponsored disinformation. Today, I'm going to guess an interview with Dr. Claudia Natalia von Vacano, who is the executive director of the D-Lab at the University of California, Berkeley. We're going to speak in detail about the D-Lab's work around hate speech and learn more about the lab's training programs, including Berkeley's brand new College of Computing, Data Science, and Society. We are joined by Mathilie Jeremelaset from the University of Pittsburgh Health and Explainable AI Research Laboratory, who recently interviewed Claudia for Pete's Health and Explainable AI podcast. Welcome, Claudia. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. To get us started, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us about Berkeley's DLAB? Sure. Thank you so much for having me. This is really pleasure to be here. So I'm originally from La Paz, Bolivia. I came to the United States as a political refugee because my father was a journalist and a political novelist. He was incarcerated and persecuted by the military government in the 80s, the Garcia Mesa regime. And this is the reason I've always been really invested in human rights and freedom of speech. In my about 25-year career, I've been deeply committed to supporting minoritized groups, such as women, ethnic, and linguistic minorities. And I have done this in various areas, such as education, health, housing, forging public-private partnerships for the public good. Since 2008, I've been at the University of California, and since 2012, I've been right here at UC Berkeley. The DLAB provides support for data-intensive social science research in highly accessible ways. The Social Sciences Data Lab, known as the DLAB, was created 10 years ago. It's the first of its kind, to my knowledge, and I am honored to be the founding director and was part of the original design team. And it's really about trying to keep up and keep in pace with forthcoming methodological shifts both in qualitative and quantitative methods. Fantastic. Thank you so much for this introduction. Mikhail, you recently interviewed Claudia for the FeedHex AI podcast. Would you like to introduce yourself and tell what interests about the D-Lab's work at Berkeley? Hello, I'm Maidali Tirumalashetti. Thanks for introducing me. And yes, I recently have interviewed Claudia for the FeedHex AI laboratory. It was such an interesting conversation. And now that I know the personal history of why Claudia was interested in her professional career, it's even more inspiring. And uh, yes, I definitely got to know a lot about the D-Lab. And what interested me the most is how it's a completely new paradigm of how the education is going forward in the world of artificial intelligence. It's just so intriguing. And I love how they're infusing the cutting-edge technology and trying to collaborate the other parts of science, other fields of science with it, which brings me to a lot of new questions. I would want to know how do you predict the College of Computing, Data Science, and Society going forward 
from what it has started right now as? Like, how do you see it in the next five years? Yeah, as you know, and we discussed the computing data science and society colleges, our first college in 50 years. So it's really a remarkable occasion for us. I really think, you know, one of the things I emphasize is the strong female leadership at the college and at UC Berkeley in general. Um, Jennifer Chase, associate provost and dean, is the daughter of immigrants, is this great example and a model for us. But of course, our chancellor, Carol Christ, and our own dean of social sciences, Rocca Ray, are also other incredible leaders here at Berkeley. And so that strong leadership is really inspiring to me uh, and makes me feel like my own leadership is something that is wanted here at Berkeley. I think that moving forward, we're going to continue to look at data science at scale through the lens of diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, and social justice. Um, I've been working on exploring issues of accessibility in data science, specifically to historically underserved populations. And, you know, we're perpetually scrutinizing teaching practice to really think about how to better serve more diverse uh, data science student population. And finally, it just so happens that diverse students are really invested and interested in ethics and societal context, which is a wonderful thing that Professor Catherine Carson created a course just on that topic to really help students understand the implications of data science, machine learning, and artificial intelligence in our greater society. So moving forward in the next five years, I only see greater diversity in data science, more participation across the entire campus, and really a coming together of scholars in an increasing way. I hope a lot of scholars get into this as well, because, you know, you're trying to infuse the ethics into every discipline of science, which includes data science. So that's, I think, a necessity nowadays, because with the growing use of artificial intelligence, people might not consider that ethics is a consideration because you could go totally wrong if you're trying to use the latest technology so much and you don't know where to not use it, right? Right. I mean, there's been many conferences that we've attended that we've been frankly astounded at the lack of questioning and challenging assumptions thinking about bias and thinking about ethics and about the so what and whether we should pursue a project or not on the basis as to whether it is going to support society or whether it's going to hinder. And so, yes, I absolutely agree with you, um, Aisley. So, Claudia, you were talking about uh, accessibility, diversity, and participation of scholars like across campus. So are there any ways that uh, students or scholars outside of Berkeley can interact with the D-Lab? Students and scholars outside of Berkeley can certainly collaborate with data science at UC Berkeley at large. Right now, in fact, we have the 2023 National Workshop in Data Science Education. Um, this is an open workshop for anybody nationally or internationally to start to delve into the foundations of data science curriculum 
Professor John De Niro is presenting on that topic. As you may know, that textbook is an open textbook available for anybody in the world to delve into, and it's a fantastic resource. We also, this week, have workshops on infrastructure and tech support using notebook design and the Data Hub Jupyter infrastructure that is also open and available to anyone in the world. There's also discussions that are happening regarding the Data Scholars Program. It's a program that actually the D-Lab was part of initiating many years ago that has remained a very strong program to ensure that diverse data scientists are successful in the Foundations of Data Science course and then go on to take on many different classes in data science. And so, you know, Berkeley is absolutely about uh, making all of this information available and open to the public. I will add that also, as I mentioned, Catherine Carson earlier, the Human Context and Ethics course. There's a discussion and uh, materials available regarding that course. Many California community colleges, as well as Tuskegee University and other partners, are taking advantage of these resources and support in order to replicate, but also customize and make their own programs that are relevant to their university context to their geographic context, and to their student population. And so we're really excited to see that grow as the years progress and to continue to be really open uh, to the public, making all these resources available and advancing our work in an open science and open technology way. Fantastic. There's so many opportunities indeed, and I created a list and definitely want to check some of those workshops out. They sound extremely relevant. Uh, Claudia, now I would like to shift our conversation towards the lab's work around hate speech specifically. What's the focus of this research, and how have your views on the subject of hate speech evolved in response to advances in technology? And what are you most concerned about today? First, let me take a step back. Regarding the Social Sciences D-Lab, I just wanted to emphasize that the D-Lab has an ethos of it's okay not to know, which means that there is a zero barrier to entry. It also means that we actively are creating a warm environment for learning. And there's two other things that we are actively doing. One is that we explain that different disciplines implement rigor in different ways. And that through that effort, what we're trying to do is to break down disciplinary hierarchies. And so I just wanted to clarify that the Social Sciences D-Lab really focuses our energy in interdisciplinary collaboration through those basic values of inclusion, both from diverse backgrounds of students from diverse backgrounds, scholars from diverse backgrounds, but also diverse backgrounds in terms of disciplinary backgrounds and breaking down those disciplinary hierarchies that we know can really come in the way of collaboration. 
And it's through that interdisciplinary collaboration that our Measuring Hate Speech Research Project evolved. It was a biostatistician, a linguist, an educator, a sociologist that initially came together to create a method that could really address these issues that are pressing in AI. So the focus was first, we started five years ago, and our focus was first in creating the model. In the next phase, we audited the model for bias. Then in this current phase, are actively applying the method to racism in the medical profession. And we're also actively applying the method to looking at queer AI. So the final stage, which is the forthcoming stage, is creating a tool so that everyone can see how they themselves are measuring up in terms of hate speech. So let me go into a little bit greater depth. You can think of our method as drawing from the field of measurement that has long been used to look at issues of bias in standardized test questions, for example. Thinking about differential item functioning and differential rater or greater severity. So items are just a fancy way of saying questions that have been developed in a valid and reliable way. And the rater or greater is, in our case, we're thinking of the labeler of the data set. So we created an expansive definition of what we conceive to be hate speech based on the literature and then tested on a reference data set. We then created a labeling instrument or a survey that we used in crowdsourcing and labeling a robust data set that used three different social media data sources. Twitter, YouTube, and Reddit. And then we were able to interrogate our conceptualized scale and empirically test our understanding of hate speech, which begins at a level of um, you know, positive identity speech and then moves from there to biased speech to humiliating, insulting speech, to dehumanizing, to violent and genocidal speech. And so one of the key things of our work is that we're thinking of hate speech not as a binary, yes, there's hate speech, no, there isn't hate speech, but as a continuum where we can measure the amount of severity of the hate speech. And the result, we argue, is what is currently the most accurate hate speech model. We can analyze the labeling bias based on a network analysis of various labelers of the comments. And then we use deep natural language processing for the development of the model. Fantastic. I really appreciated that interdisciplinary approach towards creating this model and also such a clear explanation uh, step by step of the methodological procedure of creating it. 
And as someone who is also doing computational research, I understand that not everything always goes as expected. So was there any example during the process of creating this model where you encounter certain unexpected difficulties and then how have you overcome them? Absolutely. And I think you can relate to this example. Social media users can be creative in how they attempt to get around automated content moderation tools. For example, you can commonly see intentional misspellings ranging from adding spaces or using numbers to replace letters all the way to homonyms um, or words that sound like other words are spelled differently, but um, have very, you know, different meanings. So, for example, sewer slide instead of suicide. Not exactly a homonym, but you get my meaning. And in the same vein, there's terms like let's go Brandon, which is coded language. This is another barrier to measuring hate speech because it raises two issues. It's speech that is toxic, but that requires a lot of contextual knowledge. And also speech that can use um, euphemisms and that those terms are rapidly changing, right? So in, in both cases, it's not explicit, it's not clear. And you really need to know a lot about the culture, about the local politics, about the landscape in that local context. So these challenges ultimately require larger data sets, larger models, and constant training in order to patch these very novel patterns. A company like OpenAI, with all of the resources that they have at their disposal can handle these types of edge cases. Researchers, especially with API access being restricted on social media sites more recently, face significant computational hurdles in keeping their models and techniques up to date. And so we as individual independent researchers at universities, such as public universities, have a harder time being able to keep up with models, um, with changes that are happening as compared to social media companies, right? And so we need to partner with those companies. But we're in the process of using data augmentation techniques, adding new samples to our data set by modifying the existing data set so that the models can learn these patterns. However, the issue of let's go, Brandon, coded language that changes rapidly over time is going to be an ongoing and persistent challenge for us. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for those examples. It definitely also brought up something that I encounter myself when I'm reading comments on social media in Russian or Ukrainian pertaining to ongoing war in the country. So I completely see how people change words, use asterisks or use numbers or some um, similarly sounding words to express themselves. Absolutely. And that actually brings me to another question. So uh, your model is being created and trained, rightly so, 
with the English language comments. So I know that, unfortunately, uh, hate speech is a global phenomenon. So what would be your methodological recommendations for using this model in other languages? How would someone adopt it? How would someone use this method, this model, to analyze hate speech in different languages? So the mistake has been made to try to take on too much and try to jump too many steps forward. And what we're attempting to do is expand in proximal linguistic steps forward. We're very careful to use labelers that are primarily US-based because coded language is complex. And we have found that using labelers that are not from the US yields poor outcomes. And garbage in means garbage out. If we don't have a high quality training set, then we will not have a high functioning model, which is a challenge that most other projects have confronted. In my reading of sociolinguistic research, there's no shortcut to cultural contexts. So in my opinion, we should have the humility in our approach to learn about the culture we're exploring from a more qualitative perspective to begin with, and then move from there. And therefore, we are not espousing that everyone just use our model. What we're actually asking the field to do is to look at our method and to follow our method and to replicate the method in order to develop new models that are highly relevant to your specific topic and region. Wonderful. Thank you, Claudia. And absolutely also like your emphasis on this domain knowledge and the successful collaboration between qualitative and quantitative methodology, which is often overlooked in this data-driven computational world. And uh, you've also mentioned, answering uh, to the other previous question about the challenges you encountered, about the constant changes in the language. So it's constantly evolving. And do you, like, you probably already answered that the hate speech is different depending on the context. But how do you think expression of hate speech might change in the future? And how do we adjust our methods for detecting hate speech over time and over contexts? Yeah, I think that's the beauty of the method that we are proposing, that we are actually proposing a method that is very robust. You know, we frequently are saying that data science is important in research and we need to incorporate data science into research. But again, I think that what we also need to do is to incorporate social scientific inquiry in the way that we develop models. And so what we are proposing is a novel method for developing models that can be sensitive to linguistic changes over time and across different spaces. And that method includes the development of a survey instrument for identifying characteristics of a data set. And it includes a conceptualization of the phenomena that we are trying to understand. And those as social scientists may seem um, the norm, but unfortunately in natural language processing and then the field of AI, those approaches are actually extremely novel. And so I would say, yes, I agree, language is changing, 
And so our methods for developing AI and identifying hate speech need to also evolve away from simple analytics and binary analysis. Thank you so much for emphasizing this complexity and constant evolution. So, so far we've been talking a lot about hate speech uh, from the point of researching it and detecting it, but could you also share with us what it's like to be an object of hate speech? How do individuals and groups who are targeted uh, feel about hate speech and what would be the approach that they think is good and effective to address this hate speech against them? Certainly the targets of hate speech suffer, but the perpetrators of hate speech are also people who are isolated and who don't understand the impact of their words. So I really appreciate your question. In our work, we explore hate speech against Black people, against women, against folks that are disabled, LGBT, undocumented, immigrant, who are religious minorities, as a few examples. Everyone just wants to be able to work, study, and provide for their families without being harassed. Recently, teachers standing up against censorship are receiving death threats and continual hate speech, and it's affecting their physical and mental health. That's one example in recent times that is really, truly sad example of teachers who are standing up for their students' education and who are receiving an onerous amount of hate speech culminating in death threats. But if you look at the history of the United States since 2019 and the number of uh, plots uh, to bomb Somali immigrants, the rise of white supremacy groups focusing their hate in Charlottesville, and you know we look at the plot to blow up a synagogue, it's just example after example after example, and the causal chain has been made between an increased amount of hate speech and hate acts, which are also increasing. So what do we do to address that? Um, Do we create restrictions on free speech? In the United States, we say no. We, We believe in free speech. I'm living in this country because I believe in free speech. I don't want to live in a country where there is no free speech. Also, we know from research that in the countries where there have been laws to outlaw hate speech, those very laws have been used to suppress the very people it's supposed to protect. So what we need to do is educate ourselves and educate each other. And that is what we're working towards in the measuring hate speech application phase that's partially funded by the Google Jigsaw organization, is to create an application that see how each one of us is measuring up in terms of our speech. Is our speech supportive? Is it reinforcing positive ideas? Is it educating? Is it countering hate? Or alternatively, is our speech violent? Is our speech dehumanizing? Are we comparing people to cockroaches? Are we comparing people to inanimate objects? Well, let's learn more about our own speech, about the way that we ourselves are communicating 
and how our own communities are in dialogue with one another. And I think that that's the beginning of the way that we can address these very heinous acts that are happening in our own communities. Thank you for emphasizing this importance of the dialogue and also importance of education, really, in that the change oftentimes starts with us. Thank you for like this important work that you're doing, both methodologically and for the well-being of our society. Before we close, there's a last question that we ask our guests to envision a futuristic artificial intelligence application that you would like to see exist in the future and describe it for us. So what would you like to see in the future? I think of our data science for social justice workshop that's actually happening as we speak and our incredibly diverse group of students thanks to the graduate division, Denzel Street and Lisa Garcia Bedoya, the leadership and graduate division. Um, we're encouraging novice programmers to experiment with tools such as ChatGPT, for example. To think of AI as a thought partner, we're raising issues of the limitations, the, the dangers, as well as the possibilities in learning theory, we know that there is a diversity of learning styles. If we could envision a future where instead of obscuring AI reasoning, we could make it transparent and we could empower regular people to look into the black box and use it as a tool for learning as opposed to tool for replacement, I think then the future in AI looks more humane and more optimistic. So, Ms. Daly, how do you think hate speech, especially in the medical field, affect people? And what could be the ways that uh, we can counter hate speech and racial biases in medicine and medical care? I definitely believe that hate speech will have most negative impacts, especially in the field of healthcare, because in healthcare research, there's already a lot of bias, which we see in form of, let's just say, clinical research. There was not inclusion of a lot of categories of people or racial communities before, and now we're being aware of it and trying to include all of that. And in a time where we're trying to progress in a very inclusive way of all the diverse populations, if uh, the information is uh, that is being put out is being criticized by the hate comments, that could definitely make the researchers or the physicians question their own actions, which could be very, you know, self-doubting in, in a general terminology. So, yeah, I think definitely that would be uh, of a uh, huge negative impact. But however, I think uh, all the ways that Claudia has mentioned to overcome the hate speech and to try to leverage technology to like minimize the hate speech would definitely be of great use, especially in the field of healthcare. And also, uh, I want to mention that I'm truly impressed by the depth of questions that you've asked, Claudia. And um, like in the previous interview, I'm impressed by the thoughtfulness and insightful comments that um, Claudia has made and tried to educate us all about what the D-Lab is 
and i'm definitely looking forward to see all the rem- remarkable innovations and fundamental humbleness that the dlab would bring to the society especially under the leadership who are intentional leaders like claudia herself with such noble ideologies also larisa i know about your work on information and you've heard claudia's conversation about dlab and the work that they do there So, what do you find in common with the D Lab, and what are your thoughts about it? Yeah, thank you so much for this question, Nisani. So, definitely, the big common right here is getting the data and also labeling this data, right? So, figuring out what is considered disinformation and um, collaborating between social scientists and people who are more savvy, like computer scientists. and data scientist to correctly analyze the data but also how people who have the domain knowledge to correctly label certain messages as disinformation or potential sources of disinformation and also it resonated with me a lot how this models constantly need to be updated with more examples certainly there are common patterns that we can look for when we see messages but we also have to be cognizant that the models you're developing with machine learning with the algorithms they need to be updated because machines don't necessarily see these bigger patterns and we as human beings need to be in conversation in tune with it to being able to detect those messages analytically and then using examples update the models update the algorithms so they can again constantly evolve and capture changing nature of messages um of contexts of topics that are uh, disinforming the audience and another thing that i we didn't talk much but i think it's also common between hate speech and disinformation is that it's often times very emotional so it's for good or for bad reasons we as human beings are drawn to more into information to messages that contain emotion and um specifically for like hate speech and disinformation this emotional valence of words is used for for the bad uh, for the um and again being aware of it uh, also helps us to detect to analyze those patterns and then afterwards use those examples for machine learning If I may also add that um Mehdi point it, I just want to underscore that the historical marginalization of racial and ethnic groups in the US medical system starting with the native american women and forced sterilization but continuing from then on to so many different examples of overt and blatant racism uh there's an effort to have a restorative justice and medicine uh moment that the American Medical Association is participating in and and I would say leading which I'm really happy to be part of with the Hbeach research project and part of that is to understand what racialized language looks like in the contemporary medical journals for example which can be again very coded 
It could be a language of dismissal. It could be something that's categorized as purely personal or interpersonal, but rarely sort of looking at societal and actionable analysis. And so we are, the D-Lab is working with the American Medical Association on a multi-year, a five-year research project to really unearth these racist ideas and to go back historically to look at um, the most racist, explicit uh, language in the medical profession to now contemporary sort of coded racist language. And so it's absolutely, I think Mithili is absolutely right in that it's highly relevant to the medical profession. Claudia, I want to express my admiration for your commendable and noble contributions to this insightful conversation. Thank you to you and to Ms. Lee for allowing me to be part of it. Your exchange has been truly enlightening and I greatly appreciate the opportunity to engage with such a meaningful discussion. And this brings our edition of Humanitarian AI to close.